Can I also say, I meant to say this this morning and I totally forgot, so I'm going to have to announce it a few times. <coughs> For those of you who do gift aid, if you find that your circumstances has changed uh, in that you're no longer a taxpayer, uh, then it would be good to let me know that so that we will stop claiming if you're still using the gift aid envelopes. But for whatever reason you find yourself, you're no longer a taxpayer. And uh, then we need to know that so that we can stop claiming on your behalf. Otherwise, you or us or both of us will have to pay it back. Uh, and also, if you have changed your address since you last uh, made this declaration, uh, then we need, you need to make another declaration with your fresh address on. Uh, these people are sticklers for the details. And I mean sticklers. And, uh, and they will look for every way to get out of pen. <laughs> so if we can uh, make sure that we do that, uh, then that would be great. It's lovely to get money from the exchequer, isn't it? But we don't want to be giving money to the exchequer. <laughs> we don't have to give him any money back. He gets enough out of us, doesn't he? But anyway, so, all right, we'll receive the offering tonight. And then we'll move. I said, what chin was it playing? <laughs> Continue to pray for Mrs. Lappin. Uh, she's still with us, battling, fighting. She's an incredibly strong-willed woman, uh, but she's very aged, and life has been slipping uh, recently. And so you need to keep her in your prayers. Pray for Clifford's mum. Uh, she also is, as you can see, is aged and. Uh, struggling, she's just out of hospital, she's home again. And we Norma, Norma is getting her operation the day after Boxing Day, all being well. So couldn't say she's looking forward to it, but something that she feels she needs to get, needs to be done. And so would appreciate your prayers uh, for these friends. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, let's keep on our Christmas theme and come with me please to Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 4. I'll just read verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. Did somebody ever give you a Christmas present? All nicely wrapped up like this one that I pinched from underneath Kathy's tree. And on the box they had written not to be opened until Christmas. Did you ever get one of those? Did you resist? <laughs> and so you 
shake it, and you poke it and prod it, sniff it, and you're very curious at what's in the box. And every day you look at it, and you wonder what could be in that box. Now, it's hardly fair, is it? Because the person that sent you it, they know fine rightly what's in the box. Because <clears throat> they planned this for you in advance. They chose it. And that's a little bit like the Advent story. From before the foundation of the world, God had purpose to send his son, Jesus. As it were, a gift for you and for the whole world. But God kept him hidden, under wraps, as it were. Not to be revealed until that first Christmas. For millennia, men were curious about what the prophets and patriarchs had written and said about Christ's first advent. We had a couple of scriptures this morning, did we not? Zion 9 and 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Read in Micah 5 and 2, how that this child, this ruler in Israel, will be born in Bethlehem. But how long? When? That was written seven, eight hundred years before the event. And of course, Job, long, long, long before that, Job writes in Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another how my heart yearns within me. And even away centuries before that, right back in the Garden of Eden, we see God at work. And a promise comes forth that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. A promise cryptically written. How long would that be? When? How? Where? And all along the generations of time, even though they didn't know the exact day or the exact hour, but God had predetermined that moment in history in the affairs of mankind when Christ would come in his first advent. And it wouldn't be until that first Christmas. And as with Christ's first advent, so it is with his second advent. The prophets have foretold it. He himself said that he would return. Signs are all around us. It's just that we don't know exactly when. Same for the Holy Spirit's coming. In John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, in those two chapters, Jesus twice very clearly and emphatically tells us 
told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would come when he would go, the Holy Spirit would come, lead them into all truth, teach them. But they had no idea when that would be. In their case, they didn't have to wait too long. Forty days after Jesus ascended. Remember, he was, for ten days, he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. And then, for forty days after he ascended, they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. They went into that upper room, and they waited, not knowing exactly when. But whenever the day of Pentecost was fully come, and that predetermined, pre-appointed time, then the Holy Spirit came. And this is very often the way God works. He has pre-appointed times for us as children. He has special moments when he intervenes in the affairs of our life. And more often than not, we don't know when or we don't know how. But we trust him and we believe him. And we believe that his timing is perfect and his ways are perfect. And then suddenly he comes. And he shows up and he intervenes. And so, not to be opened until Christmas. Christmas was a time of visitation. Galatians 4, 4. But when the time was fully come, God sent forth his Son. Aren't you glad he just didn't send forth an instruction book? He did not entrust his message to any angel, mighty and powerful and wise as they are. But he personally came. And that's why it says in Psalm 8 that we read a couple of weeks ago, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visited him? And the term visit him means to visit with intent and purpose. And he did visit with intent and purpose, did he not? And so Christmas was a time of visitation. Luke chapter 1. We see in Luke's gospel. In verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel... For he has visited and redeemed his people. That's Zacharias' prophecy. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then Luke 7. Verse 16, after Jesus had raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead... Verse 16, then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And then in Luke 19, <coughs> verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, 
the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And people today do not know the time of their visitation. They do not know, or some doesn't care to know, that Christ has come, that he has visited, that he's been to this earth. They will try to deny it. Atheists in Los Angeles, California, has put up a, a banner all over the city. There's two pictures on it. One is Santa Claus, and one is the crucified Christ. And it says something like, something, enjoy the season or enjoy the party, but dump the myth, meaning Christ. And that's indicative of how much of this world feels today about Christ. Even though he has come, and even though he has visited, and even though he has come with intent, and even though history itself is marked with his coming, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. And even they will try to change that to try to wipe out Christ from the memory. Christmas was a time of visitation. God planned it so that whenever the Roman Empire, when there was a great Pax Romana, Whenever there was peace throughout the known world, well, it was a forced peace. It wasn't peace because they wanted it, because they had to, had to keep the peace. Otherwise, the Romans would have slaughtered them. But it was a peace nonetheless, the Pax Romana. Because of the Roman Empire, because of the great roadways that had opened up, and the great uh, water courses that had opened up, and the ship lanes that had opened up all over the world, so whenever Christ came and the gospel came and the church was born, missions started to go out. Never was a better time for it. Because God, God knows exactly the time of the visitation. And it was the right time. But Christmas was not only a time of visitation, it was a time of incarnation. Galatians 4 and 4 says he was born of a woman. I don't know if you ever thought about that statement. Born of a woman. Aren't all men born of a woman? Is there any man that has never been born of a woman? But the Holy Spirit is not stating the obvious here. It's taking us back to something that was special and unique. It's taking us back to the fact that Christ was born, that Jesus was born in a special way, conceived in a special way. No help from man. No input whatsoever from a man born of a virgin. This is what the writer's getting at. Born of a virgin. Supernaturally born. In Luke chapter 1, it tells us there. When you read the Advent story. Verse 26, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin 
betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name is Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, Consider what manner of greeting this was. And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Cannot explain it. Scientifically impossible. But it was supernatural. Mystical. It was a God thing. Somebody said our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. Hmm. Christmas was a time of incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. Colossians 2 and 9 says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. John said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. What a story is Christmas. No wonder Satan hates any mention of it. We're not thinking of the commercial side of it, we're thinking of the advent. We're thinking of that moment in history when God came to earth to redeem a fallen race of men and to make them his own. And he came in the flesh. Glory to God. And then Christmas was a time of revelation. Time of revelation. Galatians 4 again, 4 and 5. says, He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. In Luke 2.32, Simeon, that great old saint of God, who made it for the consolation of Israel, Simeon called him a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We are the Gentiles, and his light shone in our hearts, <laughs> shone in the darkness of our hearts, the sinfulness of our hearts and gave us light and gave us life. Of course he is the light of the world, isn't he? John 1, 4, 4 says, In him was life and the life was the light of man. Somebody said that when Christ came and was born in Bethlehem that God lit a candle in Bethlehem. And the devil tried to snuff it out. And he used Herod and his thugs to murder the little children 
to snuff out that light. But he was too late. By the time he got there, the light had moved to Egypt. And that light today lights the whole world. And this is a dark world, isn't it? The events of this weekend in America shows us just how dark this world really is. But thank God for his light that comes and shines light in the dark place. In John chapter 3. Verse 17 it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. That's the thing that condemns man. That's what it is. Not acknowledging the only begotten Son of God as the light of the world and as the light of their life. That's the thing that condemns man. And when you're witnessing to people and you're sharing the gospel with people, bring them to that place. Bring them to that place. Let them know that that's the thing that condemns every human being. It's a question of what are you going to do with Jesus? And here we are coming up to Christmas and the world is busy trying to forget Jesus. Busy trying to ax him out. Busy trying to deny him and dismiss him. And that's the very thing that condemns them. Because they will not come to the light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He said, I am, John 8, I am the light of the world. The Bible says that his light is in us. Therefore, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There's something about somebody who loves the Lord, there's a light that shines in their life. And if they come into contact with the darkness, it exposes the darkness. You know, sometimes in your workplace, all you are doing is living for Jesus the best you know how, and someone is going to get very mad at you and they may not even know that's the reason because the light in your life is exposing the darkness in their life. Jesus came. Christmas was a time of revelation. 
God was beginning to reveal his great plan of redemption. And God has a great plan of redemption. William Graham Scroggie, the great preacher and writer, says he called it the unfolding drama of God's redemption. And it was an unfolding drama. And thank God, from Genesis to Revelation, you can see it unfolded before our very eyes. Paul writes in 2 Timothy. In chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to your works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God's plan of redemption was before time began, but has been revealed since Christ came, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. God revealed his great plan of salvation. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Let me read a little bit here from uh, Galatians chapter 3. Now, I'm going to read this for you in the New Living Translation because I think it will just make it a little bit easier for you to grasp tonight, all right? Listen very carefully. Galatians were... uh, Believers who had come to Christ, Jewish believers. But there was a danger, having come to Christ, having got saved and born again, that they were going to go back under the law. And Paul writes to them, and listen to what he says about that, about going back under the law. And let's find out why the law was given in the first place. O foolish Galatians, what magician has cast an evil spell on you? For you used to see the meaning of Christ's death as clearly as though I had shown you a signboard with a picture of Christ dying on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the law? Of course not. For the Holy Spirit came upon you only after you had believed in the message you had heard about Christ. Have you lost your senses? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect By your own human effort. You have suffered so much for the good news. Surely it is not in vain, was it? Are you now going to just throw it all away? I ask you again, does God give the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law of Moses? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God, so God declared him righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are all those who put their faith in God. Now what Paul is trying to get these people back to is faith in God and faith in Christ and grace, not the law. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would accept the Gentiles too on the basis of their faith. God promised this good news to Abraham long before he said, all nations will be blessed through you. 
And so it is. All who put their faith in Christ share the same blessings Abraham received because of his faith. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all these commands that are written in the book of the law. Consequently, it is clear that no one can ever be right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Now, let's just stop there just for a moment. Most people you meet, most people you will try to share your faith with, who are church people, church-going people, religious people, will throw the law at you. They will bring up the law. And they will say, well, I do my best. I know I'm not perfect, but I do my best. I, I, I try to keep the commandments. I try to love my neighbor. I try to do all these things. And, 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 and that's what they're trying to do within themselves. And if I can keep the law, then God will accept me. But he won't. Why? Because you can't keep the law. You cannot keep the whole law. It is impossible. It is such a high standard. God's holy law is so high a standard that you and I could never keep it in a million years. But that's what these were trying to do. The religious Jews were saying, look, we keep God's law. In fact, they weren't content with God's law. They added law upon law upon law upon law to God's law so you didn't break God's law. And it got ridiculous. It was nonsense. It put burdens on people that couldn't keep. So Paul's trying to say, you want to go back to that? It didn't save you in the first place because you couldn't keep it. In fact, the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if you keep the whole law and you just break one point of it, God will hold you guilty as if you broke all of it. That's how perfect it is. He'll not accept anything less than perfection. So there's no hope, is there, by trying to keep the law? You can't do it. You cannot keep the whole law. And that's why the law is a curse. It becomes a curse to us because you're trying to keep it and keep it and keep it and keep it and you can't. How can we escape that? By accepting Christ by faith. He kept the law because he was the only perfect one. And then the penalty for us breaking God's law, he paid it on the cross. Because <laughs> he kept God's law perfectly. And the perfect one went to the cross to pay the penalty for us breaking God's law in the first place. He's still with me. It is through faith that a righteous person is life. How different from this way of life is the way of the law, which says, if you wish to find life by obeying the law, you must obey all its commands. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for a wrongdoing, for it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through the work of Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised Abraham. And we Christians receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Dear friends, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so is this. So it is in this case. God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. And notice it doesn't say the promise was to his children, as if it meant many descendants, but the promise was to his child, or as the AV says, to his seed. Not to seeds, but to his seed. And that, of course, means Christ. 
This is, what I'm say, this is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be cancelled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise for if the inheritance could be received only by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise, but God gave to Abraham as a promise. Well then, why was the law given? It was given to show people how guilty they are, but this system of law to last was to last only until the coming of the child to whom God's promise was made. And there is further, and there is a further, and this further difference, God gave his laws to angels to give to Moses, who was a mediator between God and the people. And then it goes on, goes on. Did you grasp any of that? A little bit of it? God had given a promise to Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous because he had faith in God. Then the law comes along, which he could never keep, but it was to show us how sinful we were. Because man had forgotten how sinful he truly was. And God had to give him a law, so that if he broke the law, he immediately would know, I broke God's law, I'm a sinner. But that wouldn't save him. That was only to show us our sinfulness until Christ, the promised seed, would come and die for us on the cross and then we receive him and his forgiveness and his righteousness. And we believe in him by what? By faith. The faith that Abraham had. Abraham looked forward to Christ's coming by faith. We look back to Christ's coming by faith. It's faith. By grace, through faith, we are saved. All right? See, this is God's revelation. This is God's redemptive plan. Spurgeon said, and he had quaint ways to say things, he said, the law is the black dog bringing the sheep to the shepherd. <laughs> and that's true, isn't it? The black dog that brings the sheep to the shepherd. Then finally, Christmas was a time, not just of revelation, but a time of reconciliation. Because verse 5 says that we might receive the adoption of as sons. Second Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's why Jesus came. To reconcile us back to God. I haven't time to go into it tonight but do you remember Job? Job wished there was a day's man, an umpire, a go-between, a mediator between God and men. One that would understand his case because he was under tremendous pressure from his so-called friends. And Christ is the umpire. Christ is the one who can lay upon a hand upon us and a hand upon God in heaven because he's the God-man because he walked in human flesh. He knows how we feel. He knows all about our weaknesses. knows all about our temptations. But he knows the perfect holiness of God. And so he can lay a hand upon God and he can lay a hand upon us and he can bring us together. He can reconcile us back to God. And this is the wonderful news of the Advent. This is why Jesus came, to reconcile us back to God. Isn't it wonderful that he can do that? We'll just end by reading a little bit in Romans chapter 5. Again, I'll read this 
uh, from the New Living Translation. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of highest privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they are good for us. They help us to learn to endure. And endurance develops strength of character in us, and character strengthens our confident expectation of salvation. And this expectation will not disappoint us, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now no one is likely to die for a good person, though someone might be even willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's judgment. For since we were restored to friendship with God, there's that reconciliation, by the death of his son, while we were yet sinners, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be delivered from eternal punishment by his life. Aren't you glad for that? So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in making us friends with God. When Adam's sin entered the entire human race, Adam's sin was brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. And though there was no law to break, since it had not yet been given, they all died anyway. And even though they did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did, what a contrast between Adam and Christ who was yet to come. What a difference between our sin and God's generous gift of forgiveness. For this one man, Adam, brought death to many through his sin, but this other man, Jesus Christ, brought forgiveness to many through God's bountiful gift. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of one, that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but we have the free gift of being accepted by God even though we were guilty of many sins. The sin of this one, Adam, one man, Adam, caused death to rule over us. But all who receive God's wonderful, gracious gift of righteousness will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's sin Adam's one sin brought condemnation upon everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness makes all people right in God's sight and gives them life because one person disobeyed God, many people became sinners, but because by one person obeying God, many people will be made right in God's sight. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful kindness became more abundant. Just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful kindness rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Isn't that a wonderful chapter? That tells you just about everything you need to know why Christ came, to reconcile us back to God. And so Christmas is indeed a wonderful time. If we remind ourselves the purpose of it. If we remember why Jesus came. We said this morning, 
He came to a cradle. He went to a cross and he's coming back with a crown. What a wonderful story is the gospel. And we can see it in the Christmas story too. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the confidence, the assurance, the absolute knowledge of what we have in Christ. We have been reconciled back to the Father. We thank you for that. And Lord, over this incoming week, Lord, whenever we see all the signs of the commercialized Christmas that's around us, help us to keep our focus and to remind others through our words and our deeds why Christ came, why he came as a little baby and why he went to a cross. So we give you thanks. We thank you for your precious, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. It can never fail. We thank you, Lord, that you are coming back soon to claim all that love you and know you as your own. You promised that you would take us back to be with you. Where I am, there you may be also. And we thank you that already you're preparing a place for us. And we give you glory. So we bless you over this period, reminding ourselves of your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.